1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're in a series entitled United. We're talking today about true service, gifted for the common good. If you were in the first service last week, you were listening to me, and then I fell off a cliff, and we stopped and finished the service. But I did that intentionally. I got to a point in my sermon that I had not originally planned to do so and said, that's enough for today. I don't want to try and finish the rest because I've got too much to say. And so I jumped off the cliff and y'all got to watch that. And uh, hopefully it was a little smoother second service. Um, But uh, I, I won't promise anything. And so I'm going to do a very brief recap just if you weren't with us last week, so you kind of have an idea of where we're headed. But I'm talking today about this true service in the church, and we're looking at what it means for God to gift each Christian to serve in unity among the body for the growth and maturity of the whole body. So that's the big idea that you are hopefully going to walk away with today. Now, let me begin by just saying this, that as we talk about this true service, I need to begin by asking you the same question I began with last week, because it's one of the most common barriers that people put up uh, between themselves and active participation in the church. And it's simply this, what do you think of when you think of spiritual people? What do you think of when you think of spiritual people? Does spiritual in any way infer some kind of elite status to you? And if it does, all I propose to you is that you're using that term, either consciously or subconsciously, to separate it from yourself or to separate yourself from it, maybe in a self-protective measure, maybe in a self-justification measure, but whatever the case may be, you're using it in a way that Scripture doesn't use it. And what Paul is doing in chapter 12 is he's redefining for us what it means to be spiritual people, and he's telling us that the essence of spirituality is godliness. It's Christianity. At its essence, that any spirituality outside of Christianity is satanity. Congratulations. I used that word effectively, didn't I? Yes. Never heard it before until just then. But that's a big issue. That's a monstrous statement for us to make in our day and time. Paul says this, there are many spirits, but there's only one spirit that testifies Jesus is Lord. That means no matter where the other spirits come from, they all lead back to one place, and that's the evil one. And so I want to challenge this idea of spirituality and spiritual people. You see, there are no spiritual elites in the church. None. You can't use spiritual elitism to look down on others or to separate yourself from others for any reason. God gifts every Christian to serve. Every Christian. And He designed the church to work by each Christian serving so that all 
in the church can grow and can mature. Now, there's one thing I haven't covered in this simply because it's not really the way that Paul introduces it, but I haven't covered how is it that I discover my spiritual gift. That's a big topic many times in the church, and it's an important one. But I am going to write a blog post that goes out first thing tomorrow morning that gives you just a few simple general guidelines to look at. If you've never done any kind of study to discover what your spiritual gifts are, I will put a blog post out in the morning that just gives you some simple steps, a few words of encouragement and reminder to help you do that. What we're talking about, though, I do believe is critical for understanding spiritual gifts. And it's not just about how do I figure out what they are, but how do I put them into practice and exercise them in the church. And what I want to compel you with today, even persuade you, is three reasons to persuade that every Christian should serve so the whole body can grow and mature. I propose to you that your growth and maturity as a believer in Jesus Christ is dependent upon the growth and maturity of the whole body of Christ. And the whole body of Christ's growth and maturity is dependent upon your growth and maturity as a part of the whole. And so the first lesson that I gave to you is this, and, and I'm going to present it this way because I hope it helps tie to what Paul is doing, but the first lesson that we see in chapter 12 is Paul says this, there's only one God, but there are many gifts. And he's saying this, he's teaching this against the backdrop that he's been confronting in all of Corinth, because in Corinth there were many gods and each of the many gave a gift to some person so that they could have some kind of um, spiritual aberration, if you would, in the midst of everybody that elevated themselves over everyone else and kind of separated them from the others. And what Paul says is, no, no, no. That's not what our God does. That's what false gods do. Our God is one God who has many gifts. And when each person exercises the gift or gifts that God has given to them, it doesn't separate them from everyone else. It brings them more closely and more intimately into community and fellowship with one another. And so he sets, in, he sets the true God in contrast to these false gods. He says this, that this one true God works in and among his people in many ways. I'm going to move through this very quickly so I can get to today's sermon. But first of all, he says that only God's Spirit testifies to Jesus is Lord and people. That's in verse 3. God gifts his people by the Holy Spirit to confess that Jesus is Lord in word and in deed. So that's the first thing he tells us. And then he goes on to tell us in verses 4, 5, and 6 that, that God sources a variety of gifts, a variety of services, and a variety of activities. In other words, there is a specific gift or uh, spiritual ability. Let me put it like that, and I'm not going to define that anymore, but it's a, it's a manifestation of grace that God puts in your life. And then he gives you an assignment of service or ministry by which you can put that gift into play. And then he gives an activity through which that gift will actually be fleshed out, so to speak, a way in which in this ministry assignment that that particular gifting of grace will will be manifested or demonstrated among the body. 
And so he says this, God gives a variety of all of these things, but he gifts his people to demonstrate the supreme glory of his triune being. Why? He says the Holy Spirit grants gifts, and Jesus is the Lord of every assignment that we are given, and it is God the Father who empowers every activity in which we engage. So he shows the supreme nature of God's triune being among the giftings in the church. The third thing he tells us in verse 7 is that God gives each Christian these gifts for one purpose. And that one purpose of every gift is the common good of all the church. You see, a spiritual gift is not just for the one to whom it is given. And this is one of the reasons I flinch so often as a pastor when we talk about spiritual gift inventories and discoveries because they are so often geared just only towards the individual and individual discovery and individualism and it removes responsibility. But an inventory, as you'll hear me say, or an assessment to help you know what your gift is, is a means to an end. It's not an end of itself don't get me wrong I use spiritual gift inventories regularly all of our staff and most all of our leadership have been through spiritual gift inventories to see how we align with one another I'm all for them I'm just saying don't let them be the end all be all and so I want to encourage you in that but every 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 person in the church is dependent upon the faithful exercise of each Each, each person gifting in service. You know what I emphasize there? Okay, all right. I know I'm preaching. I didn't plan to preach yet. Spiritual gifts are grace from God through which we bestow grace to others in serving. That's what spiritual gifts are, friends. They're the grace of God on our lives by which we bestow grace to other people in our serving. And then he tells us in verse 11 that it is the Holy Spirit that empowers and apportions to each one as he wills, as he wills. And so all who confess Jesus is Lord, I said this last week, are being worked in, right? The Spirit of God is working in us with this bestowal of grace to us. In other words, he's personalizing it and sanctifying us through it. He's working us over. Right? And, and for those of you who are actively serving in the church, you know how that regular commitment to serve, it kind of works you over from week to week and day to day, doesn't it? He's working us over. Why? Because he's making us as he is making things through us. So he's working in, he's working over, and he's working it out. He's working it out among us. God's transforming work in you occurs as his gift to you gets worked out through you for the good of others around you. That's where we have come to. And so this first reason today is that that, that I give to you to compel every person to grow and to mature as the body of Christ is because God manifests his presence, his power, and his purpose among the body through spiritual gifts. Don't we want the presence of God among us? Absolutely. Don't we want the power of God working among us? Absolutely. Don't we want the purpose of God for us? Amen. Period. Anything else isn't worth our getting together, friends. And so God's purpose is that the church would reflect His nature, 
in the world through the exercise of spiritual gifts. The second lesson that we looked at last week, and we only got very early into this, but it was this. There are one God, many gifts, but there is also one body, many members. And verses 12 through 26 kind of unpacks this for us. There's one body, many members. And here's the reason that I want to persuade you to serve in the church, to grow and to mature in the body of Christ. It's because this, the body needs you and you need the body. The body needs you. That was what I got after last week is that the body needs you. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But I'm going to end up today with the body needs you and you need the body. You see, God designed the body of Christ, the congregation, to reflect him. That's why verse 12 begins. Go there with me. In the first 11 verses, he talks about how God gifts each one with many gifts because it's one God who gives many gifts. But the second lesson he turns to reflects the first, and he says this at the end of verse 12, so it is with Christ. In other words, the body reflects the God whom we serve. There is one God in one body through whom we identify with in unity by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit makes unity the defining priority for the local church. That's why this whole series is titled United. That's why unity is something we must labor for every week. That we must never let our guard down to grow it, to build it, to protect it. Because it takes a lifetime to strengthen and to hold it. Which is the, 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 the fuel for our mission that we've said every week. But it can be lost in an instant. Lost in an instant. And so that's what we're laboring for. The unity of the body, exercising the gifts, reveals the God or the one who gives the gifts. And we talked about two dangers that threaten our unity. Paul talks about these in verses 14 to 20. He says that each member's call from the Lord for the body is according to the body, not from another member of the body. And so the first danger we see is this, that no person can look at the body and say, they don't need me. That's what Paul says. Look in verse, what verse is it? Verse four, uh, verse, just a minute, I'll find it. If you find it before I do, just be, feel free to shout it out. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That's an illustration. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, might as well just read it all if I can't find it, right? Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And so he says to us that we cannot say, I have no need of you. Oh, look, the very next verse. Sorry, if you just spent 30 seconds in this cranial real estate, you would understand how difficult it can be sometimes. God arranges the body as he chooses. And so no person can look 
at the body and say, they don't need me because he's arranging it as he chooses. No person should look at others in the body and measure themselves or measure their value for the body based on other people. Why? Because God's determined that. God often brings glory by giving people an assignment of what they did not think they could do so he can teach them to trust and depend on him. You see, we honor God when we acknowledge his arrangement to live in unity among the body. This threat gets used in two ways. We talked about it last week. But the first way is when a person doesn't want to serve, it becomes a way, an excuse for them, an easy out. Well, they don't need me, so I'm not going to be around. But I don't think that's the dominant way this excuse or this threat gets used. I think the dominant way, most common uh, use of this threat occurs when people look at the body and they look at spiritual elites. In other words, you look at the church and go, man, those people are more spiritual than I am. They're better than I am. Or they give some kind of measurement to them and they think, I have nothing to offer this body. And friends, lesson one teaches us that this is a lie, right? One God, many gifts. And if it's God who gives the gifts and gives his members to the body, then we know that this is a lie. That no person can look at the church and go, they don't need me. Why? Because God has determined this. And God has made this assignments. And so we might ask, well, when God calls us to do something, how many gifts does one God have, you might ask. And the answer to that is simple. As many as he needs to accomplish his mission. As many as he needs. You see, one reason people look into the church and do not see many like them in terms of gifting is because God is adding you to his gifting in the body. God's using you in a unique way. He uses each of us in a unique way. And so the church's role is to equip every Christian to serve as God has gifted them. And it's Christian's role to understand they have a call from God to serve in the church. So today I want us to move into the second threat. The first threat says they have no need of me. The second threat to the unity in the body says I have no need of you. And this is where he picks up in verses 21 to 26. And I'm going to read this for us as well. The eye cannot say to the hand I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet I have no need of you. On the contrary the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This second threat is a very subtle and subversive kind of threat. But the second threat to unity occurs when a Christian looks at the body and thinks, I don't have any need of these people. You see, the body has many members who must all remember that God arranged each of them as he chose. He put you there for a reason. And when one member says, I don't need you, what they're really saying is, I use God for what I want. 
When a member looks at the church and says, I don't need you, what they're really saying is, I don't need God. When a member looks at the church and says, I don't need you, what they're really saying is, I want to be God. And friends, these are all severe threats to the unity of the body of Christ. God is the one that composes the body that members may care for one another. And and God brings two specific glories in his making of disciples by his arrangement of the body. Look at these with me. First of all, he reveals to you and he grows in you areas that are not naturally strong for you. And he does that through the local church. So God reveals to you, well, I don't like that. I'm just going to be honest with you. And he grows in you areas that are not naturally strong for you through the local church. You can learn from anyone around you in life. And I I would argue this, that we are greatly shaped by our environment. And you are learning from everyone around you in your life, whether you're recognizing it or not. But the point of the local church is distinct, that we make disciples that follow Jesus. And the people around us in the church who claim to be Christ followers are here for a specific reason, and that's to make us more like Jesus. Now, if we're a Christian this morning, we need to be asking ourselves, are the people around me more like Christ because they're around me? You see, what little kid ever pulled up to the table and of his own volition from the beginning said, please pass the broccoli. Please, more green beans. No, 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 without the brown sugar. Right? No. No, 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 please hold the butter. You know? I mean, I'm still learning to eat cauliflower. I haven't gotten to where I actually put it in my mouth yet. I can't get over the smell. I mean, there's just some things that aren't natural to us. And, and, and healthy patterns of life may be natural in some areas for some people and to some extent, but mostly they are learned through training. Now, this one's going to hurt a little bit, so I'm going to be very kind in the way I say it. This is your biggest problem in marriage, too. Is that too often... We think you have no need of the other. And God says he gave Eve to Adam as a suitable helpmate. Which means suitable. Everything you have in her, husband, is suitable. God said so. Don't try to argue. And here's the real hard part. Helpmate. Yes. You need to stop and ask directions sometimes. See, that's our biggest problem in the church, too. It's too often we just dismiss everyone else because I don't have a need for them. I'm a nicer, more merciful person because of people that God has put in the church. And when I, when I feel my lack of mercy, I stop and I just think to myself, what would Dallas Gillian do? See, I'm not the only one. When when I'm conflicted about a situation, I pause and I say to myself, what would Brent Fletcher ask me right now? It's true. 
I usually don't stop very long. I usually ask those questions on the fly, and then when I hear the answer, I kind of get tripped up and have to stop back up and remember that. God puts you in the church so the church around you can help you to strengthen and encourage you, yes, but also to challenge and grow you. The church is, hear me, commissioned with authority to grow Christ followers, not raise false God lovers. The church is commissioned with authority to grow and mature Christians, not other ideology or other life philosophizers. Serving in the church provides a real-time, real-life, disciple-making model for growth and for maturity in your life. And so I come back and ask the question, what are the people around you learning from you? There's a second specific glory that God receives in disciple-making when we confront this threat to unity that I don't need others. And this is probably, in my, in my estimation, in my experience, the most powerful lesson that we learn. But the second glory that God receives is that God puts people around us that need our service or our ministry, the exercising of our gifts. And those people have little or no, offer no return of personal benefit. I want to be careful how I talk about this because the last thing in the world I want to do is talk down about any group of people, I actually want to talk up and I want to raise the value of them. You know, it's interesting, a level, I held a level in front of you. We talk about weights and we talk about uh, uh, the measurement of weights on the scales of justice versus injustice. And what do you do? You apply weight to one side and it pulls to that side and that's how you know what is weightier. But honor is just the reverse because when you take a level, if you need to move the bubble to honor it or towards dishonor, you raise it. You've got to elevate it. What I'm trying to do right now is I'm elevating weakness among us. I want to honor it. I want to move the bubble of our church to honor weakness and not disregard it. And however weakness may be defined, God puts these people around you that need from you so that you can learn a deeper understanding of the gospel love that gives with no promise of return. That's how God in Christ has loved us. While you were dead in your sin, at just the right time, Christ died for you. You see, when, when you find yourself thinking that, well, the weep, weaker people here uh, need to be helped by me, let, let me just say you need to stop, think a minute, repent, and walk another way. Here's a clue. You can know you're thinking this way any time that you feel very uh, generous in the pity that you're offering other people. Oh, gosh. Those poor, poor people. Pity has no gospel essence in it. There's never pity in the Bible. There's compassion, but there's not pity. 
And so when we're thinking of pity, it's always from a prideful, elevated perspective of looking down on others. And friends, might I just say to you that this, this is the very essence of the gospel power that saves us. If you go back to the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18, what does it tell us? It tells us that God uses the weak to confound the strong. He uses the foolishness of the world to confound the wise. Listen to what he says. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Verse 27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and what is despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing those things that are, so that no human being might boast in the Uh, uh, in the presence of God. We've got nothing to say to God. We are without excuse in our sin and we are without excuse in excusing God from our lives. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, not even Christians can accomplish God's work in disciple-making in our own strength. Christians desperately need God to work to do God's work. And this is the way that God works. You must be being made uh, by God himself in order to be used by God to make disciples. This is one of the reasons I argue why serving in the church can can be so heavy to us at times. Because we put it on autopilot and we begin to, to borrow from the equity we've built up in our account with God in that relationship. And we wane in our prayer life and we wane in our Bible intake and we wane in our fellowship input. And in the midst we realize that we're running on fumes. And I've got to serve coffee tomorrow morning. I've got to teach 20 of other people's kids tomorrow. I've got to put up with somebody else's mess up. You know, I mean, that's, that's, and that's what happens. It's because we're coasting on fumes. And instead of allowing the condemnation to sit on us of everything we haven't done, we need to run back. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. That's not a threshold, friends. That's the most fundamental practice of the Christian life. And remember, God, I'm trying to do your work in my strength. I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. And God doesn't, he doesn't agree with you in the idiocy of your life. But he does receive you in the midst of it. To say, I I just want to do something in you so I can work through you. These are usually the most powerful lessons of life for us when we realize and confront this threat that says they or I have no need of them. But when we embrace it and we step into it and we see those people that offer us in so many ways or even those circumstances, those assignments that go, man, I stand to get nothing out of this. But God, for some reason, has chosen to put me in it. And so we walk into it. 
And those become the most powerful lessons for us. People or situations, assignments that need or demand more from us usually hold the greatest lessons for us. And I don't mean this out of prideful pity, but loving compassion and honor. We learn from other people. We learn from those experiences and and great growth happens in us. That's why I said in 1 Corinthians 8 that Christian community cherishes and honors the weakest among the fellowship. And I repeat it here today that as the church, we never neglect, we never disregard, we never dismiss, and we never discard the weak. That's why we fight for the vulnerable. That's why we fight for the helpless. That's why we fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. That's why we stand for the poor and we refuse to to forget the poor, Galatians tells us. That's why we help the vulnerable and guard them with greater modesty, Paul says. Nothing gets one deeper in sin faster than the tireless effort to overcome their own weaknesses, except except our ceaseless striving to avoid the revealing or the acknowledgement or the appearance of our weakness. We get in so much trouble so quickly when we try to make ourselves strong instead of just living in the reality of what God's doing in the midst of us and living that out in the midst of his people. You see, God puts all people in the body to grow and to mature the body, sometimes by strong gifting and at other times by receiving greater honor. The gospel is God's power alive in his people. That's why critics become good counsel and coaching for us. That's why the helpless can serve you with the best and the most help at the most unknown time. Moments. That's why our enemies can become the top of our prayer list. That's why evil against you can become good to you. That's why death in you gives way to life for you. God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. If we're to follow Jesus, we will have to forsake our way. And I would ask you, whose ways and whose thinking are you following? And therefore, since God composes the body, we see the body not as what it can do for me, but that it is one whole of which I am a part. This is the theological foundation for covenant membership, friends. Covenant membership is not just determined by your presence with people on a regular basis, no matter how faithful you are. It's determined and defined by what it is that binds your covenant together. That's why we talk about core theology. That's why we talk about uh, your identity, your core identity as a Christ follower and we as the church. That's why we talk about the culture of our church and how we are trying to create a garden that grows disciples and followers of Jesus and what it means to covenant with each other. You see, every member looks to Christ for calling among the body. No member should look at others to determine their identity. Well, I need to look at everybody else and figure out what my role is, my purpose, or my activity. No, uniqueness and diversity make up the body in order to demonstrate God's glory. And uniformity and conformity among the body is never the point. Here's the point. Unity of the body and as the body. Working together and working together. And unity is demonstrated when this variety of gifts, variety of services, and variety of activities work together to build the whole. You don't grow by simply knowing your gift. Growth comes by exercising your gift in your specific assignment among the body for the purpose of building the body. 
And the body reflects the unity of God's triune nature when each member correctly identifies with Jesus to relate to one another. And here's what he says in this oneness. He says there's one prevailing principle that bonds our unity. We suffer and we rejoice together. Why? It's mathematical, really. Because when we suffer together, we divide each other's suffering. When we rejoice, we multiply it. It just doesn't get any simpler than that. It's interesting how others who love you and are in oneness with you do not heap greater suffering on you when they're with you. They actually lift it. But when you're rejoicing, they multiply it. Just stirring it up. In order to avoid these threats to unity, we identify with one another to recognize our need and to strengthen our commitment to one another in the body. Roman exhorts us in chapter 12, verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. There is a little bit of competition in the church. Who can do better for one another? And it's not for our boasting, it's for boasting in the Lord. But God bestows honor among the body to bring unity through care for one another. The third lesson that we'll look at briefly in 27 through 31 is that each person is one body. One God, many gifts. One body, many members. Now he turns and he stops taking it from God to apply to us. And now he looks at each one of us and he says, each member, one body. Look at verse 27 with me. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Stop there. The third lesson is each person, one body. The third reason that I persuade you this morning to grow and mature as the body of Christ is because you're a member of the body and the body's growth depends on your earnest desire to mature. You can grow without growing up. But you will never grow up without growing. A Christian's new identity in Christ brings these two recognitions. Are you ready? I submit to Jesus' authority over my life and the church. I accept responsibility with my life for the church. Two recognitions, two confessions of what it means to be in Christ. I submit to Jesus' authority over my life and the church. I accept responsibility with my life for the church. You see, you can't love Jesus and disregard His bride. You can't follow Jesus and ignore His body. You can't serve Jesus and hate His children. You go, can you illustrate that for me, Pastor? Yes, I can. Let me get a two-pound sled. You come put your thumb on the table and let me crush it with that little sledgehammer and then tell me if you can ignore that thumb. I mean, we've all done that, right? To some extent and some measure. 
And that's what we're saying. Confessing Jesus as Lord means embracing that I am held by Jesus' authority and I hold responsibility for the church. You see, God prioritizes his gifts for the church. Every gift is given by God and brings him honor and glory through its service. But not every gift holds the same priority. Now hear me, friends. We're not elevating people. We're responding to gifts from God here. There are no spiritual elites in the church. I need you to hold to that for what I'm about to say. But God places higher priority on specific gifts for the body. Not for people, for uh, gifts for the body. He wills for each member to pursue growth and maturity from where they are toward higher gifts for the sake of the body. You see, dormancy and complacency are never accepted as the norm for Christian life. For no one. Christians grow and mature in our new identity as we pursue gifts that bring greater growth to the church body in order to honor and to glorify God. Growth is usually exciting, right? Because it brings new knowledge and new opportunities. And man, I just want to grow. But maturity always proves more challenging as it's accompanied with greater responsibility. God created you to grow. And God created you to grow up. All of us, every single one of us. The Christian life is designed to grow continually so we grow up for every season in order to serve and to grow up the whole body. Life point, let me just say this to you. God planted us as a church to grow. God planted us as a church to grow up. That's what the gospel does. And when the gospel stops working among a people, one of those two will stop happening. Inevitably, both of them. The last thing the world needs is for another church to live and to act like a little spoiled brat who refuses to grow up. We can't stay the same we've always been and believe that we will actually stay the same as we've always been. Hey, we adults, we're not wearing diapers this morning, right? I'm just trying to make a general point here. I'm not talking about physical needs or anything like that. I'm I'm being serious about this, friends. There's a reason we grow up. It's because the way God made us. It's because the way God works in us. What we love most about our church fellowship that ministers to our needs, that compels our witness, that most fuels our growth as a church, also demands that we grow up as a church. We can't worship God for working for us and ask Him to work in us and through us and not expect that He will grow us so that we can grow up. It just doesn't work that way. But so many people impose that ideology on the church. God tells us to desire the higher gifts. He intends that we will grow up to new heights of mission and new heights of ministry. And the same is true of your life. Are you serving so you can grow? Are you pursuing higher gifts so you can grow up? You say, how would I know that? I say, well, did God put a higher gift in the order of his revelation of the gifts? Even in this list or in any of the lists, has God told you this is what he's gifted you to do, but he wants you to pursue another gift? And you've said, I don't think I can do that, God. Good. That's probably the one he's leading you towards. Because in everything, it's not about what you can do. It's about what God wants to do in you. It's not about you becoming a spiritual elite. It's about God being elevated and Christ being exalted among his people. 
That's what your life is for, period. Nothing more, nothing greater. All of us, only for him. God gifts each Christian to serve in unity among the body for the growth and maturity of the whole body. Here's what I'm going to ask us to do. I'm going to ask if the worship team will return, and I'm going to ask them to play that last verse of that last song we sang before we come up here. Because I need us to entertain something for just a moment. I need us to consider, each one of us, what God is saying to us, where God is leading us, and what God wants to do in us. Not just for today, friends. For a year, for five years, for ten years from today. And you may say, I don't even know where I'm at, Pastor, let alone where I'm headed. That's okay. Then maybe today is the day you discover that first step. Where God has you. Where are you today? Does your life testify that Jesus is Lord in word and deed? Is your presence, your membership in the body making the body, the the people that are next to you, the people that are in community group with you, the people that are serving alongside you, not just, oh, I see somebody across the room, I don't know. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the people that God's put around you and the people that God's put around you and the people that God has put around you. Are you more like Jesus because of them and are they more like Jesus because of you? Because of what you've done and because of what you've said. Because of what you're doing and because of what you're saying. It's a pretty simple concept. But it's life changing. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. I'm going to ask you to consider where Christ has you. And to ask of the Spirit of God to speak to you with great clarity. And ask this, is where I am at today, God, where you need me to be? You just ask that question. And if it's not, where is my next step? It might be a gift to pursue. It might be an assignment to pursue. It might be an activity to pursue. What is it? Will you come and say yes? Because you walking into that, whether you think you can do it, whether you think it's right, whether whatever those unity threats that you may pose, I don't need them, they don't need me, whatever the case may be. But can you look at that this morning and say to God, yes, and here's the way you'll do that. You'll just simply come to remove the yoke of your own thinking and your own rationale to simply say yes and take Christ on you. I'm going to ask the worship team just to sing this over us. Would you be praying those two prayers right now? Where am I? Where am I headed?